Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book five, chapter 15. Getting in a little bit early because I'm heading to the beach for the night, which will be lovely. In this chapter, we learned that Rostov is intending to pay back his parents. What do you think of this whole thing? Do you think he has learned anything from the experience? And do you think he will actually follow through with paying his debt? I don't really see how he can, you know. His, what was his wage? It was something like... 3000 a year or something. Something. It was nothing. Uh, and he's, what does he owe? I can't remember what the amount was, but it's 30 something? 50 something? I don't know. 30, 38? Thousand? Something like that. It was a lot. So, um, I don't know. It's just like, that's just going to take you your whole life. Um, but then most of his money that he gets comes from his parents anyway. So if he's going to save up the money that he gets and give it, it's just going to be giving it back to them. Uh, anyway, at the end of the chapter, Rostov takes in a destitute family of three and almost duels his fellow soldier over a joke about the soldiers being introduced to the Polish girl. Do you think Rostov's reaction was warranted? Why do you think he reacted like that? You know what I think? I think he might be sleeping with the Polish girl. I don't actually remember this bit of the book, to be honest, so um, I don't know if that's what's happening or not. But reading it this time, I thought, hang on, he's, he's being very cagey about it. He's being very defensive. Maybe. Astrocodex says, Can somebody explain what the reason is that Rostov is so offended? I find the sentence below hard to understand. So what you like, she's like a sister to me, and I can't tell you how it offended me because, well, for that reason. I think he's saying he's already said the reason. She's like a sister to me. I can't tell you how much it offended me because she's like a sister to me. Uh, but I think he just kind of he's kind of blustering a bit because he's um, he's flustered. That's what he is. That's the word I'm looking for. Because I think they might have called him out. Um, the officer says Korsho implied that Nikolai had a sexual relationship with the young Polish woman in exchange for helping her family. And that's why he got offended, because he's like, how dare you? But I think he got too offended, didn't he? I think he might have been being a little bit too defensive. Kara Kikas says, I find Tolstoy's choices very interesting in terms of what he chooses to expand on with a proper scene and what he glosses over. We've just had a quite a number of pages on Pierre's newfound devotion. We've heard from God's folk, and we even had a philosophical debate. Then in Rostov's section, he glosses over the misery of the troops. It doesn't provide more color or context on this poor family. Instead... They are introduced off-screen with the only purpose to give Rostov something to be emotional over. Dare I say it, but I think the philosophy presented is performative. Like Tolstoy seems to enjoy going on in passages about how wonderful it is to show compassion to your fellow man, but then when he has the opportunity in the text to demonstrate compassion for his fellow man, he just doesn't. In the parlance of modern day, he seems to be virtue signalling rather than embodying the virtue could be like that but it's really hard to speculate on why things are left out you know it might be something as simple as you know he's just had those two scenes where he went into detail and now he's thinking oh we need to speed up the action maybe i can gloss over this could be it could just be as it's like a simple pacing thing where if if everything was dwelled upon for that long the the novel would move too slowly um and if it's the other way around and nothing is dwelled upon and, and, and unraveled, 
then it moves too quickly and you don't get an emotional attachment but it could be just a balancing act you got to call it the other thing to remember is that um every time you sit down to write it's a different day you know often even in the middle of a chapter there's a point where tolstoy put down his pen went about his life and then came back you know the next day or the next week or whenever he got back to it and continued from that point and you know a lot changes from one day to the next for yourself especially your mood your feelings about what you've written so far you might look back at it and go god that was crap all right let's keep moving and take a completely different you know uh, angle towards the next bit so um yeah you can often see between one chapter and another a different approach to that point of the story but there's so many variables that can explain why um so i don't know it's a tough one it's a tough one i don't know i think there is not so much the um virtue signaling but i do see a lot of that kind of performative i guess that's the word i don't really know if i'm using that word correctly but there are scenes where it's like i feel like tolstoy is just talking about this via his characters because he wants to talk about it at the moment and it's kind of, he's kind of crowbarred it into the book there has been a few bits like that for me let's keep reading anyway chapter 16 in April, the troops were enlivened by news of the Emperor's arrival, but Rostov had no chance of being present at the review he held at Bartenstein, as the Pavlograds were at the ops outposts far beyond that place. They were bivouacking. Denisov and Rostov were living in an earth hut dug out for them by the soldiers and roofed with branches and turf. The hut was made in the following manner, which had then come into vogue. A trench was dug three and a half feet wide, four feet eight inches deep and eight feet long at one end of the trench steps were cut out and these formed the entrance and vestibule the trench itself was the room in which the lucky ones such as the squadron commander had a board lying on piles at the end opposite the entrance to serve as a table on each side of the trench the earth was cut out to a breadth of about two and a half feet and this did duty for bedsteads and couches the roof was so constructed that one could stand up in the middle of the trench and could even sit up on the beds if one drew close to the table. Denisov, who was living luxuriously because the soldiers of his squadron liked him, had also a board in the roof at the farther end with a piece of broken but mended glass in it for a window. When it was very cold, embers from the soldiers' campfire were placed on a bent sheet of iron on the steps in the reception room as Denisov called that part of the hut, and it was then so warm that the officers, of whom there was always some with Denisov and Rostov, sat in their shirt sleeves. You may have heard my phone go off mid-sentence there. In April, Rostov was on orderly duty. One morning between seven and eight, returning after a sleepless night, he sent for embers, changed his rain-soaked underclothes, said his prayers, drank tea, got warm, then tidied up the things on the table and in his own corner, and his face glowing from exposure to the wind and with nothing on but his shirt lay down on his back putting his arms under his head he was pleasantly considering the probability of being promoted in a few days for his last reconnoitering expedition and was awaiting denisov who had gone out somewhere and with whom he wanted to talk suddenly he heard denisov shouting in a vibrating voice behind the hut evidently much excited rostov 
moved to the window to see whom he was speaking to and saw that quartermaster Topchenko. I ordered you not to lean, not to let them eat that mushka woot stuff, Denisov was shouting, and I saw with my own eyes how Lazarchuk bought some from the fields. I have given the order again and again, Your Honour, but they don't obey, answered the quartermaster. Rostov lay down again on his bed and thought complacently, let him fuss and bustle. Now my job's done and I'm lying down capitally. He called, sorry, he could hear that Lavushka, that sly, bold orderly of Denisov's, was talking, as well as the quartermaster. Lavushka was saying something about loaded wagons, biscuits, and oxen he had seen when he had gone out for provisions. Then Denisov's voice was heard shouting farther and farther away, Saddle, second platoon. Where are they off to now? thought Rostov. Five minutes later, Denisov came into the hut, climbed with muddy boots on the bed, lit his pipe, furiously scattered his things about, took his leaded whip, buckled on his sabre and went out again. In answer to Rostov's inquiry where he was going, he answered vaguely and crossly that he had some business. Let God and our great monarch judge me afterwards, said Denisov, going out, and Rostov heard the hoofs of several horses splashing through the mud. He did not even trouble to find out where Donisov had gone, having got warm in his corner. He fell asleep and did not leave the hut till towards evening. Denisov had not yet returned. The weather had cleared up, and near the hut, near the next hut, two officers and a cadet were playing Svejka, laughing as they threw their missiles, which buried themselves in the soft mud. Rostov joined them. In the middle of the game, the officers saw some wagons approaching with fifteen hussars on their skinny horses behind them. The wagons, escorted by the hussars, drew up to the picket ropes, and a crowd of hussars surrounded them. There now, Denisov has been worrying, said Rostov, and here are the provisions. So they are, said the officers. Won't the soldiers be glad? A little behind the hussars came Denisov, accompanied by two infantry officers, with whom he was talking. Rostov went to meet them. I warn you, Captain, one of the officers has a, sh- a short, thin man, evidently very angry, was saying. What? I warn you, Captain, one of the officers, a short, thin man, evidently very angry, was saying. Haven't I told you I won't give them up, replied Denisov. You will answer for it, Captain. It is mutiny, seizing the transport of one's own army. Our men have had nothing to eat for two days. And mine have had nothing for two weeks, said Denisov. It is robbery. You'll answer for it, sir, said the infantry officer, raising his voice. Now what are you pestering me for? cried Denisov, suddenly losing his temper. I shall answer for it and not you, and you'd better not buzz about here till you get hurt. Be off, go, he shouted at the officers. Very well then, shouted the little officer, undaunted and not riding away. If you are determined to rob, I'll go to the devil, quick, march, while you're safe and sound. And Denisov turned his horse on the officer. Very well, very well, muttered the officer threateningly, and turning his horse, he trotted away, jolting in his saddle. A dog astride a fence, a wheel dog astride a fence, shouted Denisov after him, the most insulting expression a cavalryman can address to a mounted infantryman. And riding up to Rostov, he burst out laughing. I've taken transports from the infantry by force, he said. After all, can't let our men starve. The wagons that had reached the Hussars had been consigned to an infantry regiment, but learning from Relavushka that their transport was unescorted, Denisov with his Hussars and had seized it by force. The soldiers had biscuits dealt out to them freely, and they even shared them with the other squadrons. The next day the regimental commander sent for Denisov, and holding his fingers spread out before his eyes, said, 
This is how I look after this affair. I know nothing about it and won't begin proceedings, but I advise you to ride over to the staff and settle the business there in the commissariat department, and if possible, sign a receipt for such and such stores received. If not, as the demand was booked against an infantry regiment, there will be a row and the affair may end badly. From the regimental commanders, Denisov rode straight to the staff with a sincere desire to act on this advice. In the evening, he came back to his dugout in a state such as Rostov had never seen him. Denisov could not speak and gasped for breath. When Rostov asked what was the matter, he only uttered some incoherent oaths and threats in a hoarse, feeble voice. Alarmed at Denisov's condition, Rostov suggested that he should undress, drink some water, and send for the doctor. Twy me for wobbly, or some more water, let them twy me, and I'll always thwash the scoundrels, I tell the emperor. Ice, he muttered. The regimental doctor, who had, when he came, said it was absolutely necessary to bleed Denisov. A deep saucer of black blood was taken from his hairy arm, and only then was he able to relate what had happened to him. I get there, began Denisov. Now, then, where's your chief's quarters? They were pointed out, please to wait. I've widden twenty miles and have duties to attend to and no time to wait. Announce me. Very well, so out comes their head chief, also took it into his head to lecture me. It's wobbly, wobbly, I say. He's not done by man who seizes provisions to feed his soldiers, but by him who takes them to fill his own pockets. Will you please be silent? Very good. Then he says, go and give a receipt to the commissioner, but your affair will be passed on to headquarters. I go to the commissioner. I enter the, at the table. What do you think? No, but wait a bit. Who is it that's starving us? shouted Denisov, hitting the table with his fist of his newly bled arm so violently that the table nearly broke down and the tumblers on it jumped about. Talionin. What? So it's you who's starving us to death, is it? Take this and this, and I hit him. So pat. Straight on his snout. Ah, oh, what a, what a... And I started flushing him. Well, I had a bit of fun, I can tell you, cried Denisov, gleeful and yet angry, his white teeth showing under his black moustache. I'd have killed him if they hadn't taken him away. But what are you shouting for? Calm yourself, said Rostov. You set your arm bleeding afresh. Wait, we must tie it up again. Denisov was bandaged up again and put to bed. Next day he woke calm and cheerful, but at noon the adjutant of the regimental of the regiment came into Rostov and Denisov dug out with a grave and serious face and regretfully showed them a paper addressed to Major Denisov from the regimental commander in the which inquiries were made about yesterday's occurrence. The adjutant told them that the affair was likely to be taken to take a very bad turn, that a court-martial had been appointed, and that in view of the severity with which marauding and sub insubordination were now regarded, degradation to the ranks would be the best that could be hoped for. The case, as, rep as represented by the offended parties, was that after seizing the transport, Major Denisov, being drunk, went to the chief quartermaster and without any provocation called him a thief, threatened to strike him and on being let out had rushed into the office and given two officials a thrashing and dislocated the arm of one of them. In answer to Rostov's renewed questions, Denisov said, laughing, that he thought he remembered that some other fellow had got mixed up in it, but that it was all nonsense and rubbish and he did not in the least fear any kind of trial and that in those scoundrels, if those scoundrels dared attack him, he would give them an answer that they would not easily forget. Denisov spoke contemptuously of the whole matter, but Rostov knew him too well not to detect that while hiding it from others at heart he feared a court-martial and was worried over the affair, which was evidently taking a bad turn, 
Every day, letters of inquiry and notices from the court arrived, and on the 1st of May, Denisov was ordered to hand the squadron over to the next in seniority and appear before the staff of his division to explain his violence at the commissariat office. On the previous day, Platov reconnoitred with two Cossack regiments and two squadrons of hussars. Denisov, as was his wont, rode out in front of the outposts, parading his courage. A bullet fired by a French sharpshooter hit him in the fleshy part of his leg. Perhaps at another time Denisov would not have left the regiment for so slight a wound, but now he took advantage of it to excuse himself from appearing at the staff and went into hospital. Alright, there we go. Another chapter for you. Denisov has gone to hospital which, if I recall, is the last place you wanted to go. Wasn't it Wasn't it saying, like, just last chapter, that some soldiers who were sick would prefer to just be sick on duty than to go to hospital because of the mortality rate of the hospitals? Oh, dear. All right, guys, have your say on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you tomorrow.